Recently, for Malia's birthday, uh, we decided that her birthday party would be gathering some of her friends, just a few, uh, and going on a shopping trip at Stonestown. Uh, one way to kind of control it, instead of having a very expensive birthday party, but birthday parties are insane these days, how expensive they are. And we saw only three of them, we gave them a set amount of money, and we took them on a shopping trip, which is way cheaper than that. But it's also a fun way to kind of teach financial lessons. Uh, and so Jeanette made an activity out of it. Um, I was in charge of Sela, uh, just to keep her from being, you know, whiny, basically, about wanting to tag along with her sibling. Uh, at the end, actually, she was fine, but, you know, she's worried. She wants to tag along. She wants to be with her friends, and Malia, being older, wants to separate from her, 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 from her sister. It was interesting. Um, what we did was basically give him a set amount of money, I think it was $40, and we said, you would, uh, have, you would have to budget and understand taxes and everything in order to make purchases. Um, I mean, you could see the values, the thinking of these kids. One kid said, if I don't spend all $40, would you just give it to me to take home? We're like, no, this is not a you take home the cash situation. <laughs> kid's very good at, I mean, you're learning, right? From the parents, just save all the money, right? But as you give them a certain amount and they can't take it home, you know, we don't want them to just buy the first thing they see. And so we went to all the different stores and had them write down what it is and then the cost and calculate taxes. It's a great learning experience for their birthday. <laughs> it's really fun. Teach them a budgeting and made them really think about what's worth it and what's not. And one of the rules was you can't buy things that are obviously against things that your parents wouldn't let you buy. So no crop tops or any of these girls. Please, no crop tops. Um, my favorite was, we want them to buy things, though, that, you know, just are fun. Maybe sometimes they're just silly or frivolous. And my favorite thing was this one girl bought this, like, novelty oversized pencil that was, like, this big. I'm like, this, there's no point in your life. You can't do anything with this but bother people by poking them with it. And that's what they ended up doing with it. Uh, it's all for fun. It was actually quite a fun experience, hanging out. They all had a great time. Um, and it did surface very interesting values and thoughts about money. And you get to see it from the different kids. And where they get it is actually from experiences that they have with money, whether they never get it, allowance, or maybe never have access to spend money themselves, or from seeing and observing how their parents spend money or not. You can see it. You can feel it. Because we all have experiences. We're all shaped by our parents to some degree, our culture, from negative experiences we have some positive experiences we have, and some of these shape us for better. Some of us get shaped for the, for the worse. Some of these things are shaped with biblical values. Some of them are very unbiblical values that we have. We're in 2 Corinthians in a section in chapters 8 and 9 where Paul is addressing money and generosity. The overall theme of the book, we've been in this book this entire year, we're actually going to take another short break from this book, uh, and look at the Lord's Prayer starting next week, and then we'll finish the book right before Christmas time. But the overall theme of this book has been God's power displayed in weakness. That's what the gospel actually is, that God could take weak things like the death of Christ and display victory in the resurrection over sin and death. Jesus accomplished where we failed. He lived a perfect life in our place. He paid for the debt of rebellion against God that we deserve to pay for on the cross, 
in him, in our faith and trust in him, we receive new life. And it's going to be represented in the baptism we're going to celebrate, where his death becomes our death. That's going in the water. And our, his resurrection is our resurrection in coming out. And this good news that even God can take death and defeat it and make it our victory, this good news changes everything, including how we look at using our resources. And if the way to be strong is to embrace weakness, maybe the way to be truly rich is to be generous. To find contentment maybe is to use the very things that God gives to us to serve his purposes and to serve the needs of others. We've been looking at this theme uh, for the last three weeks in chapters 8 and 9, and some of this may feel a little bit repetitive because Paul is making the same point in these chapters, but we're going to learn some unique things about the attitude this week as we look at one of the main themes he ends on is that God calls us to be willing and joyful givers. That our giving, our generosity, ought to be one that flows from a willing and joyful heart. We're going to look at the attitude, look at some concluding principles, and see the results and how, how that all shapes us to, to have a heart that is willing and joyful. In chapters 8 and 9, remember, it's dealing with the generosity, dealing with the collection of finances for the church in Jerusalem. He's dealing with the Corinthians, and he's using an example of the Macedonians who are included in collecting resources to give back to the church in Jerusalem who's now experiencing famine and poverty. Because the Corinthians pledged and promised to give and Paul is now calling them to follow through. There's probably some lag time. They're writing letters, and now he's in Macedonia. Now he's coming back. He's sending some people to collect, and he wants them to be ready so that they're not giving out of exaction. He's not trying to guilt them. He's not trying to manipulate. They pledge joyfully themselves, and he wants them to be prepared. And so he's asking them to consider this willing and joyful gift that they promised. And that's what he wants to unpack here, this attitude of willingness and joyful generosity. Look at verse, nine, uh, verse 7 with me in chapter 9 again. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. God cares about our hearts. God is never impressed with religious behavior modification. When Jesus confronted the Pharisees, they were the religious leaders of their time. They were the people who many looked up to. They were admired for their obedience. They were very impressive with their external sacrifices, but Jesus called them whitewashed tombs, very nicely organized and pretty on the outside, but containing rotting flesh on the inside. Their behavior looked pretty, righteous, but they were motivated by selfish greed and pride. They were doing the right things externally with all the heart-wrong motivations. And religious people for all time can all struggle and become good at this, doing good things with the wrong heart reasons. We just modify behavior in which our hearts are not aligned. Think about this even with generosity, as we've been looking at it for the last few weeks. This sadly could result, and I pray that this doesn't, a guilty giver, where someone just says, you know, God wants us to give, and so then you feel like, well, if I don't, then God's not going to love me. No, that's, you're missing the whole point. God's generous, infinitely generous. He doesn't need our money. He wants your heart. 
Or maybe you feel pressured. Well, I see all these other people doing it and now I need to not miss out. Or You see that even in the, the story of Ananias and Sapphira, which includes some of that wrong heart motivation. You, they saw the early church generously selling their property and giving it to meet the needs of other people and they did the same. They had a piece of property. They sold it. And no one was forcing them to. But what they did was bring it and present it as if they were giving all of the money from their sale. But they held back some. And so they lied about it because they wanted the approval of everyone else. And we sometimes feel that same kind of pressure and guilt. That's the wrong heart. And they were judged severely as there was the movement of God in that time. Or sometimes we, we treat God like a genie where we give, we put the right amount of money into the slot and we expect certain things which is how many people unfortunately view God. You do certain things or you give a certain amount and then you get from him. That's not how God relates to us whatsoever. We did not earn the, the grace of salvation in Christ. He gave it to us when we were his enemies. And so we give as a response to that sacrifice and generosity. He wants our heart, our soul, our mind, our strength. He wants all of who we are. That's why Paul says he describes what we do in worship with our lives is a give our lives as a living sacrifice. It's not really about the money. It's a heart issue. But money is often an indicator. It's a, what we've been calling a check engine light issue. It may indicate something that is wrong with our hearts. That's why Jesus says in Matthew 6, 21, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. It's ultimately a matter of the heart, willing and joyful. And so, if there's a lack of generosity, what we're asking for you to do is not just give out of guilt or pressure or anything else, to examine the heart, to truly ask God to search your heart. As Paul mentioned earlier, the primary motivation for generosity is a response to what God has done. And so if there is a lack of generosity, it is to examine our hearts in how we see God or the lack of seeing God as a generous God and asking God to help us believe in who he is. And to wrestle with the doubts or the, the lies that we've chosen to believe. Giving for the follower of Jesus is not because we're trying to be good people. It's a response to the infinite riches we have in Christ. Without guilt and manipulation. That's why he talks about this attitude of joyful and willing. Because if our hearts are set on Christ and the gospel, then our posture towards generosity will be willing and joyful. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. Look at, look at willing first. If you decide with your heart, if you're willing, that means the decision is not based on mere feelings. It's not that feelings can't help lead us in a certain direction and can be used by the Holy Spirit. It's not that feelings are inherently wrong, but it's not just mere feelings. If you decide, you have a willful understanding. You've chosen to respond in God's sacrificial generosity. It means, it implies, actually, you have a grasp of the resources that you have. And you have an intentional response to decide and plan to be generous. Willing is actually a change from the Old Testament practice of generosity and giving. And remember, Paul actually has this background and it shapes him. But he's actually giving us a new framework, a, a gospel framework for generosity and giving, not one that's attached to Old Testament law. It's by grace. Remember, in the Old Testament Jewish religious system, it was shaped by the tithe. Uh, sometimes people use that in the talking about generosity and giving in the church. We, we choose not to intentionally use that. Sometimes it, we use it because it's so 
pra common practice in language. We intentionally don't use that word because it literally means tenth. And nowhere do you find this repeated in the New Testament. The, in the Old Testament practice, they literally were called to give a tithe, 10% to the priesthood. There were also other tithes and offerings on top of that. Scholars estimate the average Jewish giver would give 25 to 30% of their annual income to the work of God and the other support of other things in their lives. But if you look at the New Testament, you will never find, I promise you, you never find the command to tithe. It doesn't exist. There's no specific amount ever mentioned by Jesus or by Paul. And it doesn't mean that a specific amount isn't good or bad. It just means the categories are changed. In the New Testament, giving isn't attached to a percentage. It's attached to the sacrifice of Jesus. The theology of giving in the New Testament isn't lowered, actually. It's infinitely expanded because Jesus didn't just give you 10% of his life. He gave you everything. And so our lives are willful and decided in our hearts to respond. If Jesus gave us everything, it's a sacrifice. How do I sacrificially respond with my whole life to God? How do I respond? We know as Christians, we are not our own. We were bought with a price. And so giving is ultimately driven by sacrifice, not percentages. And so we have to decide how we want to sacrificially respond willfully. It doesn't mean the Old Testament practices aren't completely unhelpful. Some people may use that. It's often used in common conversation, right? The tithe, maybe we're trying to aim for 10%. And for some people, this may be wise. That's something that actually works in your life and you can support your life and give generously. And 10% is sacrificial in your life. For some people, that's not possible. There may be seasons in your life, 10% actually is not doable to live in San Francisco. And we understand that. And there's sometimes people who have 10% is like nothing for them. Because you just have so much more. Because the amount for the New Testament Christian, the one who follows Christ, isn't the, amount, isn't the issue. It's the heart that's willing to respond to the sacrifice of Jesus. In Mark chapter 12, Jesus is near the synagogue uh, observing the treasury. And he was observing wealthy people coming to give. And when people gave back then, they didn't give it by PayPal, they didn't give it by bill pay, they, they gave by currency and coins. And so if you were wealthy and you were giving a large amount, it would have been very impressive. You would carry probably something to carry the large amount of coins you would be bringing. But along came this widow who brought two small copper coins, equivalent of a penny, and this is what Jesus says about her. And he called his disciples to him and said to them, Truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. They are all contributed out of their abundance, but she out of her poverty has put in everything she had and all she had to live on. Fundamentally, the amount isn't what matters. God wants your heart. And if he gave us all, he wants us to decide to respond sacrificially. How do you willfully respond? How do you decide in your heart? Look at the sacrifice of Christ and let the Spirit lead you to sacrifice and respond to the great, ultimate, infinite gift of Christ. Let me give you some practical encouragement to if you're trying to decide in your heart how to be generous. First, you should pray. I, I think if you pray and ask God to search your heart about the greed that may exist or the, the generosity that you long for, ask him for wisdom, he will answer those prayers. He will lead you to decide in ways that are truly sacrificial. 
If you ask God, teach me to be sacrificial, I believe he will answer that prayer in your life as you open yourself to him. You should pray. Second, you need to look purposefully. The reason we give announcements in our church, the reason we want you to learn how to be good students of the culture around us and learn about what's happening around us is because the only way you to be intentionally sacrificial is to know the needs around us. That's what we're sharing with you as a church about the needs of the Camachos. We want you to see and understand and then decide in your heart if that is something that God wants you to give towards. You cannot give decidedly in your heart unless you know the places where there are needs. And so look regularly at what's happening in our church. Look at your neighborhood. Get to know what's happening among your neighbors so you can learn how to support them. Look at, as we just prayed for the schools, whether they're in public school, private school, Catholic school, Christian school, whatever kind of school, if you know, there are infinite needs in the classroom, right? If you were to ask your teacher this coming week, how can I help meet a need here? The teacher will give you an answer. The problem is we may not want to answer, be the answer to that, solu that, that the solution, right? But there are infinite needs. If we look, that's how we begin to learn to decide to be sacrificial and give intentionally. This means you have to understand, and it's something I, I think those who are my age and younger, in some ways, we, we learn it a little bit differently than those who came before us. Many of us may not budget very well. Uh, we don't plan, and so we kind of live by the moment or paycheck, and we don't plan, we don't think, and so we don't have an ability because we've now spent it all on boba. So we don't have that challenge, we don't have that ability anymore, and so we need to plan and think about this. And have a boba, you know, part of our budget. All right, so I'm making fun of you a little bit, but it's okay. You can have that. But how do you then plan to be generous? Because if you spent all your generosity, then you don't have an ability to do so anymore. Joyful. This is a posture of willing joy. It, it, it is an affection. It, it is, yes, but it's also a, a willingness. It's, it's an act of your, your will and decision. And this is hard for us. Fundamentally, I think this is very hard for most Americans because we naturally believe what we have has primarily been earned by us. There's a song, which I won't sing. Um, we work, she works hard for the money. I don't think it's appropriate for me to sing that song, but I will say something later because I haven't sung in a while. I'll do something in a second. But, but that song, right? Now it's stuck in your head, even though I don't sing it. But that's how we think. She worked hard for the money, so it's her money. And yes, we do work. There is a call for human responsibility to the things that God gives to us. But think about who's the source. Even though we work hard, who is the source of what we have? But we have this mind mentality. And that reminds me uh, of the story of the Lord of the Rings. If you remember I love this series, but I can, I've only watched the movies through once, and I can never finish the extended ones because I always fall asleep. But I, I love the concept there of the ring, right? Sauron created this one ring to rule over the world and use it to oppress those who are under him. And he lost the ring, or people took the ring from him, and now those who possess the ring after him become somewhat obsessive about the power and the ring. And one such person was Gollum or Smeagol. And he would hold it, right? And he'd say, my precious. There you go. You got something. Not a song, but a voice. Right? He says, my own love, my precious. And he obsesses over it. And he thinks he owns it. 
But if you watch it and read it clearly, you see that he's owned by the rain. We're honest, truly honest about what we have in our lives, our money, our achievements, our homes, everything we have, we are not the source of that. If we're honest, all of it in this creation, in heaven and on earth is God's. And this is a very freeing truth. It frees us from being mastered by our money, by our stuff, by our achievements. Even though, yes, we are called to work responsibly, who, who did we choose to be born here? Who, who chose? Who, who chose to be born here? Good. None of you raised your hand because I wouldn't want to talk to you afterwards if you did raise your hand. None of us chose to be born. None of us chose where to be born. None of us chose to have brains that worked a certain way. None of us, tra- get, none of us asked to have a certain body. I, didn't, I would ask for much more height if I got to ask for it, right? None of us asked for the things that we have to achieve the things we have. Who's the source? We aren't. And so it's pride. It's ultimate pride to think we are the ones who worked hard for the money. Yes, there's a sense in which we are responsible. Again, I'm not diminishing that. I'm not trying to encourage laziness and apathy. But we are not the source. And this can free us. It makes us joyful because we consider where we have been graced by God. He gave us abilities, a place. Because, and this thing about this, the joy. What's the object of our joy in order to have joyful giving? It actually can't be, first of all, it can't be yourself because that would be selfish pride. It also can't then be the people you're giving to. Actually, if your source of joy is only on the people you're giving to, you will get burnout. Because eventually, people will disappoint you. It will always happen. If you ever tried to be practicing generosity freely in your life, you will be burned out eventually if your source of joy is the people you're giving to, because they will disappoint you. They will misuse the money. They will lose the money. They will do all kinds of things eventually, right? Someone will do that in your life. If the source of joy ultimately has to be fixed on the God who gave us all these things. He is our joy because he is infinitely generous to us. We read about that in 2 Corinthians 8, 9. He, he who was rich became poor so that by his poverty we might become rich. He is infinitely generous to us, not only in Christ, but forever. Look at Ephesians chapter 2, verse 7. So that in the coming ages he might show his immeasurable riches of his kind of grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. In the coming ages, he will show us immeasurable riches. It's not just that he gave us immeasurable riches in Christ. It's not just that he gave us the Holy Spirit, his very presence. He forever and ever and ever, he will never end how much he will show you how gracious and rich you are in him. In reflecting on that truth, getting our hearts to believe that will make us joyfully generous. We take our hearts off ourselves. We take it off the people. We take it off our treasures. We put it on Christ. I should say here that it doesn't mean that you don't give unless you're emotionally joyful. It does say, yes, that God loves a joyful giver, but God also wants obedience. He just ultimately loves a joyful giver. And I think the way we think about this, to help me think about this, is our children. Those of you who have kids or you've worked with kids, you understand this. And in our house, we have certain rules. Sometimes they're stated, sometimes they're implicit, and we got to learn how to state the rules better. But kids, when they obey because we're, we're telling them to do something, that's good. I want them to obey when I ask them to do something. I ask them to put away their dishes when they're done eating. When they do that, 
when I ask them to do that, after I remind them to do that, I'm still kind of happy. They do it. That's good. They don't just leave it there and, you know, spite me. But if they do something without me telling them, and they then show appreciation and thankfulness for the meal we just cooked for them, how amazing would that be? Because that's so rare, right? Our feelings may not always catch up, but if we lack joy, the, the question we have to ask our hearts is, why have we taken our eyes off of Christ? He loves a joyful giver because it reflects his heart. He is a joyful giver. He is joyful in giving us Christ, even though it cost him. Jesus is, for the joy set before him, endured the cross and despised its shame. For the joy, God is always a joyful giver. So he loves a cheerful, joyful giver. He gives some principles to help us continue to unpack generosity here. And some of this will be uh, repeating principles he gave before. I think it's worth repeating, though. Uh, if we want to be joyful and willing, he gives us this principle of you reap what you sow. This is a little different from before, but if you look at verse 6, the point is this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Most of us are not farmers. Any farmers? Maybe there's a couple here who actually live up where there's farming. I haven't met many farmers in our church, though. Uh, but some of you may be amateur gardeners, right? That's kind of like farming. You plant stuff in your backyard. You're trying to grow something that may grow in the fog. You have something back there. But if you've ever tried to plant something and you're sowing seed, if you, if you have acres and acres of land and that's your livelihood, when you're sowing seed at the beginning of that season, no farmer ever considers the throwing and sowing of seed as a loss of seed because they believe that the seed that they're sowing generously out there into the land, into the soil, brings food at the harvest time and then provides the seed for the next season. Any farmer that's stingy in the sowing of seed actually only hurts himself because then he bears less harvest and then therefore less seed for the future. He only cheats himself. The more he sows, the greater the harvest. And the more he will have seed to have for the next harvest. Now, this, we understand this agriculturally, but apply this to our money, our generosity. If we're giving generously, it produces a plentiful harvest. The question we need to ask very carefully here is what kind of harvest is sowed by our generous giving? Most of us aren't farmers, and we think in investment terms, and so we think of ROIs, return on investments. We want to see how much percentage we'll return if we give to something or invest in something. Paul is not talking about sowing seed so that if you give money, God will somehow give you more money back as prosperity gospel preachers pervert this text, right? You give a seed money and you're going to get more money. That's how they pervert this text. That's not what he's talking about. In fact, it's very clear that that's not what he's talking about. It's not some secret to get more out of God. If you demonstrate more faith, then God will give you more money. If you give $10, he'll give you $10 million. That's not, that's not what God is saying here. That's not what Paul is saying here. The harvest, the plentiful, bountiful harvest is righteousness. He says it here in verses 9 to 10. As it is written, he has distributed freely. He has given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for the food will supply and, and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. Righteousness bears fruit in the lives of others. 
Righteous good works last forever. Righteousness with the glory of God in the lives of others endures forever. Think about what Paul's most concerned about when he's talking about the concerns as he's writing the letters. He's worried about the gospel being preached in vain for some of these believers because what he wants to see, what only will last forever, is people who understand the gospel and cling to the gospel and will be with Paul for eternity. What lasts? Those good works. And so that's what we, we, we reap. And so as we're praying for educators and people who are in education, as we're praying for you, we're praying for a plentiful, plentiful harvest. As you are sacrificially giving your energy, your time, your gray hairs, you're giving, yes, gray hairs, you're giving all of that to the next generation. We're praying that as you sow that joyfully, willingly for the, for the, for the Lord you love, it will bear fruit in a next generation who will know Christ who will then give their lives to Christ and then expand the kingdom of God to the end of the earth. That's what we pray for. That's the, that's the plentiful harvest. That's the same true of our money as we give of our money, that it would bless and expand God's kingdom and expand it until he returns. We reap what we sow. If we sow stingily, then we're going to get very little in terms of righteousness. If we sow generously, God will bless that. Second, our gifts, everything that we have, ultimately is given to meet the needs of others, to serve others. If God gives us more, it's not because he wants to make us personally wealthy. It's because he wants to use us so that we would be the means by which he meets needs in this world. Look at verse 11. You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way. God's purpose in giving you a lot isn't to make you wealthy. Personal wealth is never the goal. Personal wealth isn't the end. It's the means by which you meet the needs of other people. I love what John Piper says about this verse. He said, God has made us to be conduits of his grace. The danger is in thinking that the conduit should be lined with gold. Copper will do. A million-dollar income doesn't need to be matched with a million-dollar lifestyle. If God has personally given you wealth, he's, ex- he's expecting followers of Christ to be conduits of grace, to be the means by which we expand righteousness in this kingdom, in this world. Imagine if Christians actually lived like this. Churches would be a place where they overflowed in generosity to meet the needs of other people. Think about how cities will be blessed. And actually, this is one of the things that impacted the early church in the cities around them. They began to see how Christians were generous to one another and that generosity overflowed into their cities and it began to draw people. Why are these people living so differently? They're just giving it away to people who aren't even their family. If if you want to pray for gospel transformation in our city and the world, one of the ways that God does that in this world is by our radical generosity with one another and how it overflows into the cities and neighborhoods that we live in. I mean, cities will be blessed because as we met all the needs, because in our church, if there was ever someone in need, I believe 100% our church could meet that need. There should be no one without their basic needs met in our church. That that, That will be met. And think about that. Even if that's done, we have way more than enough 
to overflow to be blessing in the city that we live in. And think about what happens as a city begins to experience the overflow of our generosity because we believe in a generous God. That would change our city. That would change at least starting with the Sunset District. And if it continues to overflow, think about how that overflows into us starting another church in another place so that it continues to meet the needs of those believers and then overflow into the places that they live. That would bring more and more glory to God again and again. He ends with some results. If we want to have joyful, willing hearts, we, we do need to see some of the results. These returns on investment, he, he doesn't leave us in the dark completely. He does describe some of them. She describes it in verses 11 to 13. This is a radical return. You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. For the ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but is also overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. See, he's repeating himself. Verse 13, he's going to repeat himself again. By their approval of this service, they will glorify God because of your submission that comes from your confession of the gospel of Christ and the generosity of your contribution for them and for all others. Thanksgiving, glory, gratitude, worship. When we are generous in response to the sacrifice of God, the return on investment is more glory for God. He gets the praise he deserves. It's like when your kids express appreciation for you unprompted right they, they do certain things around your birthdays or you know christmas time thanksgiving time and it's awesome but the rare times that they do something unprompted it, it brings so much joy it, it brings appreciation and gratitude it brings glory it, it, it pro- appropriately assigns weight to the sacrifice that you have for your kids Think about how infinitely that is in the kingdom of God as we generously give and it overflows the thanksgiving. More and more thanksgiving to God. If we want to see, and this is what we believe, we want to glorify God. That's part of our vision. We believe that part, part of the primary existence of humanity is to bring glory to God. And part of the fundamental ways we do that as the people of God is by our generosity because that stirs gratitude and thanksgiving and worship to God. And that's related to the second return on investment, the second result. You see the joy of needs being met. He says in verse 12, not only supplying the needs of the saints. He's not diminishing that though. You actually get the joy of seeing people's needs met. I'll just read you this part of an email we just got from uh, Vasti, uh, sister of the Camachos. And we just heard from them as we were preparing uh, to be generous to them. She said, in her email, we have tried gathering some money, but we have always trusted that God would provide one way or another. And I just want to say thank you for being God's way of blessing the poor upon our family. We're 62% there uh, in meeting this need. Praise God for all the responses of generosity this past week. You get the joy of seeing needs met and the gospel ministry continue and the gratitude towards God increase amazing. Third, another return on investment is love and unity. Look at verse 14. While they long for you and pray for you because of the surpassing grace of God upon you. Remember, and we may not sense this because we're not 
experiencing the tensions that exist in their time, Gentiles and Jews, how significant the divide was in their culture. There's a deep cultural divide. But if the Gentiles, not related, maybe some of them have never even been to Jerusalem, are in Christ, even though they don't share the same heart language, even though they share, they share the same city, cultural background, religious background, if they're in Christ and they're generously giving the people across all these cultural barriers, what it begins to do is create unity and love. Generosity across culture, across language, across geography tears down walls. It destroys division. And if that's true at the human level, think about how it's true of God. See, God's gener generosity towards us in Christ turns saints or turns sinners into saints. It makes us saints. That's the power of God's generosity. It makes us from rebels into friends. It turns orphans into sons and daughters. That's the power of generosity. And if God's generosity is that life-changing, it makes sense how our generosity practiced in response to God's also has a like kind of power by the Spirit. We begin to break down barriers. So we want to see gospel-transformed disciples in our city and in the world. Part of how we do that is by our generosity in response to God's generosity because that will unite us to other Christians. That will unite us to non-Christians and they will begin to see the grace of God because they will see it practiced, not just Christians angry all the time. They'll see God's love in us and will produce results that give God glory. God, friends, we have a generous God, infinitely generous to us. And I pray that the Spirit of God will continue to lead us towards generosity for his glory and his kingdom. Would you take a moment to pray with me? As we've been doing the last few weeks, if this posture is helpful to you, maybe just put your hands in your laps facing up because this is a posture of receiving and a posture of giving. Because we receive from the Lord. And only because we have received from the Lord can we freely give. And so ask the Holy Spirit. I believe the Holy Spirit will answer this prayer, what do I need to receive from you, Lord, today? And what do I need to respond and worship today? Father, strengthen us to believe truth. Would your spirit help us to push back against this lie that you do not love? that you are not generous, that you do not provide. The lie that began with all the way back to Adam and Eve to distrust you and your goodness. Father, help us by your spirit to see with our hearts, our minds, our strength, our whole being that you are infinitely generous to us in Jesus. May that draw us nearer to you. May it cause us to trust you. And may that trust and belief and faith overflow in our lives. Father, I pray that you would take the generosity that is here in our church to meet the needs of one another. That within growth groups and relationships in our church, that you would 
meet the needs of one another. Father, would you enable us to be vulnerable enough to share when those needs are there? Because sometimes we also believe the lie that we should have everything put together nicely and we don't really, shouldn't really burden anyone else. No, we are meant to carry one another's burdens. Father, may the meeting of needs here be so tangible, so real, that we realize all our needs are met. So we are free to be generous to this world that needs you. And may your kingdom expand because of your work here and the work of your church, not just our church, but the church as it believes in your generosity in Christ. May your spirit do that work for your glory. Amen.